time for another edition of Baseball and Beyond, presented by Masses Restaurants, and today, a St. Louisan, but we're sitting, looking at Ivy, it's it's Bob Costas. Yep, there's no denying that. Hi, Bob. You know, sometimes, sometimes people say to me, what's your name again? And you'll see him at an airport or whatever. What's your name again? And then I say, politely, with a smile, Bob Costas. And very often they say, that's right. And I say, yeah, I get that one right a very high percentage of the time. Who would not know your name and who you are? Those who say, good to see you, Mr. Musburger. Oh, wow. How you doing, Mr. Nance? Or better yet, thanks for flying with us, Marv. And then I just say, yes, an enjoyable flight. You know, whatever keeps things moving, as Austin Powers once said, that's what I favor. I didn't know you did impressions. That was a good one of Marv. You got any more? Halfway decent. <laughs> you get me in the right mood, I'll do a Vin Scully, but I'm not in the right mood. <laughs> you are, uh, we're sitting here at Wrigley, and we're looking at the Ivy, so I think we, first we have to just kind of mention you're doing an MLB Network showcase game. You're doing two of them this week. But when we sit here looking at this, this uh, place, I remember the first time I walked in here. Mm-hmm. It never gets old. I, I just wanted to get your thoughts uh, on Wrigley and kind of what the Cubs are doing this year because this is as special as it gets for, for this, this franchise for a long time. Well, the second part is easier to answer. If the Cubs were the Cincinnati Reds or the Milwaukee Brewers or the Texas Rangers, you would say objectively that they're the best team in baseball. This is not, you know, lightning in a bottle and maybe they can do it if everything breaks right. They should be the favorite. On the other hand, the postseason in baseball now is so much different than it used to be. Even back in the days when they added the LCS to the World Series, you're only one level removed. Uh, the Cubs not, are not going to have the jeopardy of the play-in wildcard game, but you've still got the wildcard level. You've got a best-of-five division series, which is a real crapshoot, especially when you throw in potentially two off days, which throws off all the normal seasonal differences in pitching and starting rotations and whatnot. And then you got, assuming you survive, a best-of-seven LCS and a best-of-seven World Series. That's a real kind of month of attrition for the team that ultimately emerges. A lot of things can go wrong. Any team good enough to make the postseason is theoretically good enough to beat any other team, including the 1927 Yankees or the 76 Cincinnati Reds, best of five or best of seven. So it's a gauntlet that you got to run. But if I had to pick one team, not out of sentiment, I'd pick the Cubs. But given that, when you throw the sentiment in, the Cubs in the World Series becomes a national story, not just a baseball story. There'll be stories about it on every national newscast. It'll be on the Today Show. It's that kind of thing. It's a bit in that sense like the Olympics. Even those who don't follow gymnastics or swimming care about the Olympics. People who don't follow baseball that closely cared about it when the Red Sox broke the curse. They'll care about it if and when um, the Cubs get to Wrigley Field. Now, I mean get to the World Series. Now, I even remember your question about Wrigley Field, and it's this. <laughs> They've managed to do with this place the same thing that the Red Sox did with Fenway, which is they have added some necessary modern touches, like the new scoreboard we're looking at above the bleachers in left center field. They've modernized the clubhouses. They've added some revenue-producing seating. And yet, as we sit here and look at Wrigley Field, it doesn't feel much different, if at all, to me, as it did the day that Ryan Sandberg had his day in 1984 against Bruce Souter. So they've maintained the character and the appeal of it while still intelligently modernizing it. So thumbs up to that. 
you could have had some time off. I mean, you had this this uh, big event. You did 16 days yeah. of TV, yet mm-hmm. you came back for baseball. I'm curious about just how you thought the Olympics went for you, how they went um, for, obviously, uh, the world. And do you think, is this always going to be remembered for Lochte, or are we going to soon get past the Twitterverse universe about the Lochte thing and it'll be remembered for the athletes and some of the great things that happened? Well, I think one of the things that all thinking people are going to have to come to terms with is the Twitterverse, the blogosphere, it exists, but it's often just an idiot's echo chamber. (laughs) Why should that be a defining aspect of anything? It's not a Gallup poll. It's not a true consensus. By the way, I knew by saying Twitter I would get you to go on this. (laughs) I mean, 12, 12 people on Twitter decide that Joe Blow has angered them, and then worse yet... What should be mainstream publications or the digital platforms of mainstream publications act as if that's a story. So social media angered at Joe Blow for whatever reason. The reason may not even make any sense. And even if those 12 people are angered, what about the 12 million people who sat there and watched it and said, I like that, but they're not motivated to be out there. So um, the Lochte thing things like that, many controversies, they seem disproportionate if you're getting all your news by Googling. But I think what people will remember these Olympics for, I mean, Lochte did a knucklehead thing, and it's on Lochte. They've already forgotten if they ever knew the names of the other three guys, forgotten and forgiven them. They're going to remember Katie Ledecky and Michael Phelps and Simone Biles and Usain Bolt and Brazil winning the soccer gold in overtime. They're going to remember the beach volleyball on the scene at Copacabana Beach. And they're going to remember that Brazil, against all odds, seemed to pull it off, at least for those three weeks. Now, I'm not naive. I'm not saying that when the Olympics packs up and leaves town that all of Rio's problems are solved and all of Brazil's problems are solved. No, the real story is that despite all their problems, they managed to pull off the Olympics. I'm a St. Louis guy. You were for many years, and obviously we have a, a kind of a harsh feeling towards the NFL. And I think a lot of us in St. Louis have thought, okay, twice is enough. We're not watching anymore. Right. Is it? This is obviously a St. Louis feel, but is the NFL too big to fail? Is there anything that can bring it down? I think there's obviously, you know, people talk about uh, concussions making yeah. children not play anymore. But it, it seems like, you know, these owners and the commissioner, they just feel like they have no, there is no problems in their minds. They can do whatever they want. And and that's what they did in that room when they, when they sent the Rams to LA. They are pretty high handed. (laughs) They really are. Um, the possible crack in the foundation is the one you mentioned, but it may take a few generations to actually have the kind of impact on the NFL that you might be thinking about. And that is that more and more moms and dads are going to say, um, Almost paradoxically, I'm going to continue to watch football. I'm going to continue to be in fantasy leagues. I'm going to continue to bet on games or root for my team, but I'm not going to let my son play. Um, But is that going to hold for those whose socioeconomic circumstances make the risk worth it for the potential reward? Is it going to hold in Arkansas and in Pennsylvania and in Texas and other places, Alabama, Georgia, where it's a way of life? across all demographic categories, um, it may be a while before that takes hold. I think you're going to see lots of individual cases where people opt out because the risk isn't worth it. 
Um, you're going to see more and more coverage of it. And sadly, you're going to see more and more bold-faced names who, when they're 50, aren't going to know whether it's Monday or Tuesday. Or sadly, they're going to take their own lives. Or their lives are going to end with them not recognizing their family members. And that's going to be attributable to football. And there is no denying it. And even now, there are some people candid enough within the league itself to acknowledge that. But that's the possible crack in, in the foundation. But we don't see any diminishing of the television ratings yet. We don't see the diminishing of the ticket sales. So, so far, there's no measurable negative impact of the NFL besides the PR impact. From the St. Louis standpoint, here's what I think annoyed me. I know it's what annoyed me, and it annoys most St. Louisans. They lied. I get this. Hey, St. Louis, there was a time when it made sense for you to, in effect, take the Rams. It made sense for the Rams. In that sense, you St. Louisans, even if you like football, you have no legitimate complaint. It's like somebody complaining that their girlfriend left them. No, somebody's girlfriend left them, and that was okay. But when the same girl left them and went back to the other guy, that's terrible. Okay. We've had a lot of analogies during this time. I got to be a lot of the and the girlfriend wife thing has come up a lot. Okay, all right. So I'm not no, the first. No, no, no. I'm it, not the first. The analogies on that one. are very, very. I mean, you can just think of all yeah. the different analogies so, that come up with with uh, cheating spouses. So in that in that in that in that respect, I think St. Louis has no legitimate gripe. They're sort of like the fans in Baltimore who thought with justification that it was horrible when Bob Ursay in the middle of the night took the Colts from Baltimore to Indianapolis. The Baltimore Colts were a friendship, uh, flagship franchise of the NFL with Johnny Unitas and Lenny Moore. They were part of the early history of the league, and it was a terrible thing that happened. But wasn't so terrible, was it, in Baltimore, when the Cleveland Browns, another flagship franchise, up and came to Baltimore. Then it was cause for celebration. So very often with fans, it's just a case of whose ox is being gored. You live in San Francisco, supposedly a sophisticated city. You're willing to suspend disbelief about Barry Bonds, even though it's as plain as can be to the rest of the world. That's kind of the way fandom works. You're a Patriot fan. Maybe you can't bring yourself to say, you know, it kind of makes sense that Tom Brady probably wink-winked at the equipment guys and at the same time say, the league turned this into a travesty by making a misdemeanor into a felony. They're both true, all right? If, if, you're, if you're a Patriot fan, you want to believe the worst about Peyton Manning. If you're a Colt fan because the Patriots more often than not beat you, you want to believe the worst about Tom Brady. That's kind of the way it works with, with fans. After all, fan being shorthand for fanatic. But the real gripe, the real logical fair gripe against the NFL is just this was BS to begin with. It makes sense to simply say, look, Los Angeles is a market where if you have the right facility, the possibilities are just enormous, not just compared to St. Louis, compared to Memphis, compared to Indianapolis, compared to Green Bay or Milwaukee, compared to almost any place. You know that this new facility is going to be part of Los Angeles's Olympic bid for 2024 and probably a very effective part. You know that the ESPYs are going to be there, that concerts are going to be there. They could play a World Cup there. None of those things were ever going to happen in St. Louis. 
And if somebody just talked straight about that, especially Stan Kroenke, who's a Missourian by birth, I think that's what rubbed people the wrong way. You know, disappointment is one thing, but being BSed and lied to and strung along and played for a fool and then have someone say with a straight face that this is going to be a great um, project because it's going to be terrific for minority hiring. When St. Louis's plan for a new stadium is one of the most aggressive for minority hiring that any city has ever put together for any project, it's like, hey, you know what? Just stop talking because every word out of your mouth is a smug lie. And that, I think, the NFL feels as if it can get away with with impunity. And how do you balance that with what your your job is? Because you have the Sunday night uh, pulpit, you have um, your commentary at halftime, mm-hmm. and and you know I don't think you censor yourself. You said stuff before that you've had to kind of go out and explain before. Are these things that sometimes your bosses are saying, well, let's don't say that Rogers in the house? I mean, how hard is it for you to kind of separate those? Well. I'd prefer to be in the position of covering the league as opposed to just presenting the league. You know, let's stipulate that many NFL games are extraordinarily exciting. And it's a unifying experience. You know, a grandfather takes their granddaughter or or grandson. It's a cross-generational thing. You go to Lambeau Field. You you get it. You get what it means. Um, And many of the people I've met in football, players, coaches, administrators, are among the best people I've met in sports. So my problem is not with that, but there are lots of issues surrounding the NFL, and I'd rather be able to cover them than just be somebody who's involved in presenting tonight's game. And I push as much as I can for a chance to cover them, and I give NBC credit for allowing me to do more of that than any other network sports announcer gets to do. We're not talking about great shows like Real Sports on HBO or Outside the Lines with Bob Lee on ESPN, but for a network presentation in and around the game itself, they give me more leeway than any other sports broadcaster gets, and I try not to abuse it, and I appreciate that. But the formats rein you in. Like, if, you, if we wanted to talk about all the aspects of franchise relocation that we've been talking about here, and obviously I'm taking advantage of the freedom of a podcast, and I could do it more concisely, but even so, if you've only got two minutes at halftime, you got to think, can I get in all the aspects of this that I'd want in order to make my case? Colin Kaepernick is an interesting story as we speak. There are things to be said for what he did, but there are also reasonable things to be said, not because you disagree that there are injustices to protest, but because you think that maybe he's made his point simplistically. Would you have enough time at halftime to say something worthwhile? You'd have enough time on HBO. You know, if they gave you 20 minutes on HBO, you might be able to have a really good conversation. So, you know, it's kind of... I feel some ambivalence about my position at NBC. My first thing that I have to remember always is I've been there for how long? (laughs) 36 years. They've been extraordinarily good to me. And because of that, I've had many incredible experiences, not just for myself, but for my family, and things I'll never forget and that I always enjoyed, and I'm appreciative of that. But is there a part of me that maybe is more journalistic or more inclined toward addressing the issues than many sportscasters? Yes. And am I frustrated that I can't do it to a greater extent? Yes. 
We'll get back to the interview with Bob Costas in one moment. Appreciate you listening, but I want to tell you about the title sponsor of this podcast. It's Massa's Restaurants. Massa's, of course, five locations. One in Newtown and St. Charles, the one in Baldwin off Manchester, Wing Haven, always fun, Town and Country, and Bridgeton, the old place, Italian fare, great entrees, great portions, an affordable price. I enjoy everything on the menu, the red sauce pasta, white sauce, linguine, Oh, they've got fish, they've got Cajun chicken, they've got St. Louis-style pizza. The Big Al Special, go in and tell them Brad sent you, and you want a Big Al Special, and you never know, maybe you get a couple pieces of bacon extra on there. It's stlmasses.com is the website. That'll give you directions to the locations. It'll show you some menus. Each location is different. The bartenders are fun. Your waiters and waitresses will be a hoot. I would say, bring your family, bring your friends, hang out after dinner, hang out before dinner. It's just a fun place to go for an evening of good food and good times. There's no baloney in the cannelloni. They're the title sponsor. Tell them, Brad, your podcast friend sent you. You heard it on Baseball and Beyond, and you said, boy, we're going to give Masses a try. Also want to let you know that we've got a blog that uh, we put together, we, I put together, it sounds better if you say we. Or anyway, bradsportspage.blogspot.com. That's a little companion blog. Kind of gives you some more information on some of the things we talk about in the podcast. So go read that. You can also see other interviews that have been done and maybe catch up. Hopefully you're enjoying today's interview. Let's get back to it right now. Wanted to ask you about your uh, show later. Um, I think that show, what well, you see it on YouTube. I used to watch it as a kid. You said thirty-six years at KMOX, so I was about three when uh, you started there. All right, NBC. I'm sorry. Yeah, you were at KMOX way earlier, but uh, you do. You're still doing your your thing, which is awesome. But later was a show where you did interviews. And you did Gary Shandling, you did David right. Letterman, you did Ellie Wiesel. I remember you mentioning him before. Right. But the, the entertainment, I think when I look at it, first of all, I'm curious if you would even be able to do a show like that every night due to the entertainment not being what it was back well, then. Because I think you, you like name these people off. I, I'm not saying this just to be nice. These are among the most perceptive questions that I've received, all of them, including this one. So I said to someone the other day, uh, someone at NBC, they said, would you ever consider coming back and doing a show like Later? Even if it was only weekly as opposed to nightly. And I said, you know, I don't think I could do it as well. Because when I was in my late 30s through my mid-40s, I was kind of in the center cut of the, the cultural climate in America, at least for a large portion of the audience. I could brush up on Billy Joel or Bruce Springsteen or Ray Charles or Smokey Robinson, um, but I didn't need to turn to some production assistant and say, "Hey, who is that?" You know, or tell tell me tell me a little bit more about Taylor Swift. You know, it isn't that I don't know who Taylor Swift is; it just isn't as much a part of the life that I've led. Um, if you said to me you're going to interview Robert De Niro tomorrow, I think I could ace it just the, the way I hope I would have aced it in, in 1990. If, if you said you're going to interview Zac Efron tomorrow, who I met at the Olympics and he seems like a really nice guy, I don't know if I'm the right guy to do it. You know, it, there, there comes a time when it's kind of your time. And then there comes a time when you transition into other things. 
you know, I, I think I can still call baseball for a long time. I think I can still cover sports issues for a long time. And there might be a handful of cultural figures that people would want to see me talk with. But on a nightly basis, I don't think that it's as much in my wheelhouse as it used to be. But, and I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, what you referenced talking about YouTube, when someone who had been on later passes away, it seems as if some portion or all of that interview shows up on YouTube. Somebody has saved it. Just yesterday, Gene Wilder died. Gene Wilder did an interview on later that was so funny, so revealing, and yet so sweet and touching that you got a real sense of who Gene Wilder was while also seeing clips from the producers and Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles and hearing stories about Gilda Radner. When Glenn Fry died, I mean, I hadn't seen it, and someone told me, hey, look, it's on YouTube. I hadn't seen it in more than 20 years. But yeah, that was a pretty revealing interview of, of Glenn Fry. Same thing with Elie Wiesel and, and Mike Wallace. So it was a privilege to do that show and to have the liberty, not only of half an hour each night, but if the guest was interesting enough, say, let's, let's do a double. Will you come? I'd always say, will you come back tomorrow night? person would say, sure. And then curiously, the next night we were wearing the same clothes. But, but it still seemed to work. But yeah, and my thing with this, and I, I'm going to continue to name names, because Bill Murray and Chevy Chase, right. and these are all just right from that era where it's not the same. But did you have three? I mean, were, did you ever? I mean, they, to me, they're biographies. And, That's and the, what they were. They, yeah. they were meant to be video biographies. And ideally, although because you have inventory, so sometimes you had to have somebody who just happened to be on a sitcom and it wouldn't necessarily go in a time capsule. But by and large, our operating principle was the person had to have a body of work, you know? They had to have a body of work that was worth discussing. And I think they respected you, too, because I, I think that's part of the deal. When you're, when you're a good interviewer, a Bill Murray starts to open up, and even Chevy. You know, everyone's yeah. seen Chevy on Johnny Carson. He's just not going to... I, and Paul McCartney's the one I think I, to me it's the one I love because you can you can watch it right now and it's yep. like you did it yesterday. I'm so flattered that you remember all this. I, I well, you too. Really but I do, but that but I do I watch these a lot and I what I think Bob me and you could do this together. We put these out on DVD. We we make a little money me and you. You know what people have said to me? Why aren't these things better archived and more available? Um, and I have no idea. I don't own them. I'm happy that I did them and that people remember them. At the time, I'll show you how different the world is, at the time that, that we did Paul McCartney, he had never done any American television interview in 10 years. And this is before the explosion of, I guess Entertainment Tonight existed, but the Access Hollywoods and the Extras and the Inside Editions didn't, and obviously the internet didn't, and all the social media didn't, and now just about everybody, there are exceptions, but just about everybody is pretty much available to one extent or another. But it was a big, big deal that Paul McCartney came on the show. And we recorded for an hour and used every second of it. So <laughs> when you remove the commercials, that became three shows um, of, of later. And to hear him describe writing a song with John Lennon um, and how, you know, some songs, like for example, McCartney wrote Yesterday. But it be, it, they were all, by agreement, Lennon-McCartney songs. And some songs John wrote, but others they collaborated on. And he's talking about them sitting around, and he, McCartney, says, it's getting better all the time. And Lennon says, by nature of his personality, 
can't get much worse. And then I can hear McCartney. I wish I could imitate his uh, his accent. Oh, yes. My God, you know better than I no. do. No, get it, get it down, yep. get it down. And and but then to also hear him say, I, I said to him, you know, there's a notion that you were the melody maker, and John was the cultural voice. And while there may have been some truth in that, there was large overlap. And I listed some songs that that were pretty gritty that Paul either had primarily written or written himself. And he said, you know, I accept that. I understand that. But John and I had different lives. Neither of us grew up rich, but John had a really tough life with his dad and his mother and, and what. And part of what gave John his greatness was that unhappiness. And in order to be greater, if I had to be more unhappy, I'll take the happier life. He said something like yeah. that. That's not exactly the quote, but it was like that. I'll take the happier life. And he was such a nice and, ac- and accessible man um, that you, know, you don't forget stuff like that. And when, when they say that you're going to interview Paul McCartney, who they bring in through a separate service elevator, because after all, he's Paul McCartney. And he's listed, by the way, on the guest list as Rodney Dangerfield that night, which I also would have enjoyed, right, by the way. Sure. I, I, I did interview Rodney Dangerfield on HBO, but never on, on later. And you sit there at age 40 or 41 talking to Paul McCartney, but in your mind's eye, you're 11, sitting on the floor in your parents' living room watching the Beatles on a black-and-white TV on Ed Sullivan in 1964. And you're saying, wow... I wonder who that I went to high school with is watching this now, and what are they thinking? Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and anytime I hear that song, I think of that interview because that YouTube clip has been up for ten years, and I I never knew the story. So I love that show. I know you have a meeting to go to, so I guess a couple more, min- more minutes. Um, Dick Enberg decided um, yeah. to go do Padre baseball. That was his decision. Quit the network. Is this something that uh, you see your career path? You do the network stuff, and then someday be finishing off with a team I know you I think you've said before that's like the one thing you've wanted to do baseball wise is be with a team for a year if I did do one sport it would only be baseball Um, I'm a big basketball fan and especially the NBA and I follow it closely but I had my run on the NBA and they were good years and that's fine but if I if I did one sport it would be baseball but you have to make concessions to your personal life too and if I could get a situation where it was only home games or only games. Let's here. Here we are in Chicago, let's say. And if it was, yeah, yeah. But you, you can go to St. Louis. You can go to Milwaukee. Um, go to New York if you want to. But you don't have to go to every game in this city or that. No disrespect meant. But I would only do it if, if it was respectful of the fans of the team and the other broadcasters involved in the team. If I wasn't unfairly pushing someone aside. If I was a welcome addition but not someone who had bogarted someone else's position and where it seemed to fit with the fans. And I guess the, the, the only real place where that might be 100% true would be St. Louis. Would I be open to it? Yeah, I'd be open to it. Do I think it's likely to happen? A lot of stars would have to align for it to happen. I think what's more likely is that at some point, when my schedule opens up a little bit, um, I do a month or two of minor league baseball. <laughs> Just for the pure experience of being the voice of some team in Greenville or Chattanooga or Toledo or uh, Asheville, um, to do like a Bull Durham type experience, just 
as, uh, as somebody once said, for the love of the game. Bob, I chased you down way back in 94 for public access, and today I just walked into a truck and said, let's do a podcast. So it's, it's been fun over knowing you this, this many years. Is that the one that Terry Bradshaw and Dennis Miller were also part of before a banquet in St. Louis? We did, I did you there, you had one with Ditka, but then you allowed me into your office. We did a two-camera shoot. I had no idea how to work the equipment. It took us about an hour and a half to set up. In your office, you were doing some dealings, and uh, but then we sat down and we, we did an interview like why, this. Why do we both remember this stuff so well? <laughs> this, this, this indicates a weird, that we have a weird sort of chip in our brains, which most of the time just probably makes us annoying. Mm-hmm. But in this circumstance, it's useful. The 1987 Cardinal season, I can tell you anything that happened on any date, uh, pretty much 90%. I got to go. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Bob. You're Appreciate welcome, your time. Thanks. And this is Baseball and Beyond presented by Masses. We thank Bob Costas for joining us today. <laughs>